Welcome to the U.S. Fire Journal Podcast. We offer views and opinions on the fire service around the world with no topic too tough to handle. Visit us at usfirejournal.com for all your fire service information. Now, here's your host, Jay. Good morning and welcome into the podcast. Today is March the 25th, 2022, and I am Jay. Today we have uh, quite a few topics to get into, including some questions. Um, but I want to start out uh, actually with a what I thought was a really good question, and that's um, one person sent in and said, hey, are ladders over 100 feet really useful? Is it worth the extra cost? And then went into uh, some some ideas about how they're not used that often at, at a height greater than that. And it's a it's a good question. I think it's it's always good to explore these types of things. But um, and I I enjoy doing it. And so here's my thought on on ladders over over a hundred feet. Um, are they useful? Yes. Are they necessary? Yes, they are necessary. And they're necessary because communities uh, that have them. Anything over a hundred, they've they've come to the conclusion that they need this particular ladder, and typically it's because of uh, height, obviously, uh, reach, obviously, and look, I have um, I've been up in an aerial that was uh, one of the highest in the world. I got an opportunity to get in it. Um, it was an interesting ride to say the least. And, uh, uh, you know, I, I don't know that I would want to be that high, but there's a need for it. Um, as to, you know, how often are they used? Well, you could say that about any piece of equipment. There are people who will, or departments that will go out and they'll buy equipment. And they'll say, well, we're never going to use it anyway. Why'd you buy it? That's number one. Unless it's a requirement, Right. But if it's a requirement and you have it, why not utilize it? It's one of the things, you know, when I look at aerial devices, especially with the cost, uh, when you look at the cost of them, uh, most people think, well, or not most, some people think, you know what, we got to save them. Let's not use them. That way they'll last longer. Well, that is betraying ignorance with respect to, to the engineering and, and wear and tear on things. If you're going to spend that much money, you better be using it. And using it once in a while isn't enough. It just isn't. Um, the truck is going to break down eventually. And you might as well be using it so that you can figure out what's going on. And look, if you're going to spend money on a 110-foot ladder, let's just go with 110, then use it. You know, It's, it's one of the things I think that uh, for people who have... Um, been around departments or been in departments or been around the fire service that they they recognize as a need and that is if you're going to have a truck company if you're going to have ladder devices aerial devices use them platform use it mid mount use it stick use it uh, snozzle use it squirt use it the bottom line is you don't have to 
utilize it in the very same way as everyone else. Um, you know, there are always calls in which you can put an aerial device in use. I was um, in a downtown area, I believe it was yesterday, and um, in a metro city near where I'm at and went under a train trestle. And the train was sitting up on, on the bridge there, uh, as they do when they wait to move. And, you know, it underscored the point that, okay, you got to fire in a rail car there. You know, you send, you send an engine, engine gets there, the fire's elevated, call a ladder, right? That's what that department would do. That's what most departments would do. Get a ladder out there. That's what they're for. If you grab an aerial device, and, or if you buy an aerial device and all you do is wait for the perfect moment to use it, you're going to waste it. Same thing about owning an aircraft. If you own an aircraft, you need to fly it. You own a boat, you need to be on the water. That's what they're made for. Aerial devices, fire apparatus are made to be on the street. It's just the fact of life. You'll never have a problem replacing them as long as they're utilized. The problem comes when they're not utilized. That's when you have a problem replacing them. And uh, it can get expensive. And it's a huge, huge outlay of money to get nothing in return. So... Use the ladder. You need 135 foot in your department? Go get one. Um, you know, it's, it's what's needed. Look at the buildings around you, coverage, what type of streets are you on. I mean, that's something that I think is, is kind of a, uh, an understood thing. You know, what is, what is the response area? Is it tight, urban? You're going to have to maybe go with a different rig. Wide avenues and streets along a, a main drag? Okay. Suburban? Okay. Rural? Okay. It's all about asking those questions. You know, so are they useful over 100%? Absolutely. I mean, are they useful over 100 feet? Absolutely. Here's another one that came in. And I, I again, I reached out to um, the major SCBA manufacturers. How often should an SCBA turned on, be turned on to check the air? Not talking about a, a computer module. Not talking about a self-test. I'm talking about actual airflow. The answer? Every single shift. When you go to get on the rig, or when you go to check off your air pack in the morning, whatever, all of them need to have air cycled through. Um, that is the most important check. You know, it's great to have a, a computer module or, you know, a small little heads-up thing that says, yeah, yeah, you know, self-test complete, everything's functional. But if the air hasn't flowed, then everything's not functional. You don't know that the airflow will work. You just don't. It's one of the interesting things, I think, for, for people who grew up before, um, you know, the wholesale advent of, of, of computers, certainly, and their entrance into the market is that, we relied on a lot of manual things. We did. And so you have an appreciation for that, for the simplicity in many cases of that. But let's face it. Most of us like this computer age too, right? Be able to look at something. It does a self-test. It says, no, everything's fine. But they can fail. A manual uh, device can fail. So you know a computer device can. 
And we can calculate the odds on it failing, but the bottom line is it will fail. And the more you throw things around and things go down the road, um, you know, they're not as rugged as one would like them to be. So yes, check your air every shift. Every shift. Not once a month. Not once a week. Every shift, you should be cutting it on and making sure that you have airflow. I mean, it just makes sense. Now, there are others. I know there are some people, and I think this person referenced one, who uh, who feel as though uh, you don't need to do that because, you know what? They're, uh, these things are the greatest things since sliced bread. Uh, so is an aircraft. So were aircraft when they were first introduced. People were saying, wow, can you imagine flying that distance? Then, of course, a lot of them crashed. And, I mean, they still crash, just not as much as they used to. The bottom line is, no matter what technological advance there is, it's still being built by human beings. And things will fail. Even if it has a 99.9999% of success, there's still a possibility of failure. Do you want to be the one who, who finds out the hard way? And I'll be blunt. A lot of people who don't want to check things off in the morning... It's laziness. That's really what it is. You have this, the, these people who think that, you know what? Man, I just don't want to move a muscle today. Okay. The problem is, is that those lazy people aren't the ones who always pay the price. So, stay on top of it. Check your air pack. It's your lifeline. It is. Check it. Make sure it's working. Manufacturers understand this. They advocate checking these things off. They advocate establishing airflow. Okay? They advocate it. They understand better than anyone, really. Um, so, for those of you that are asking about that, that's the deal. Let's see. I'm on the East Coast, and our department is shifting to a modified training schedule which in mine and others opinions um, don't allow for hands-on training evolutions to us this is a basic requirement of uh, fire training what are your thoughts i would agree with that uh, you know training is training education they're vital and, and any that you get is better than none. Hands-on training, though, um, yeah, man, it, it's so essential. Um, and and I, I think one of the things we get geared or, or focus too much on making sure that, that we're meeting paperwork needs. And, and to be fair, that's needed. You need people to meet the paperwork needs. Um, we all know adminish type people. Um, we know how they roll, and uh, you know. But but it's a good thing we have them. It's just unfortunate they also get involved in operations. But nonetheless, but hands-on training is very important. Um, putting your hands on hose lines, ladders, SCBA. We were just talking about. Um, you know, being out in a district, out in an area, looking around, seeing what's going on. You know, so many people feel as though if you go out into your particular area or district 
um, it, it's almost like, oh, we, we can't pull a ladder off the truck. If we pull a ladder off the truck and throw it up against a building, we might make someone mad. Again, laziness. Ultimately, that's what it is. It's, it's laziness. Um, you know, what we used to do in, in one department that I was on, we would go out and uh, we'd pull up to an alley and we'd have, we would have put a couple of sections of reserve hose on and we would roll them down the alley just to spot where we were going to have to, how much hose we were going to have to need if we went down that alley and then went into a courtyard of a house. Um, the same the same was done in high-rise buildings. Uh, and when I say high-rise, I'm talking, you know, four to 20 stories. Um, we did it a lot. And not one time were we ever complained on. Because people get used to seeing it. And when you explain to them why you're, do- why you're doing it, it's amazing. It really is. Um, so, yeah, hands-on is important. It's more than important. Uh, that that hands-on training ropes and knots they keep the fingers flexible right keep the hand-eye coordination uh, solid they do too many people they go yeah i'm gonna tie knots this week and then they don't tie any for however long and then they wonder why they couldn't do it on the fire ground or my favorite people i have never had to tie you know a, a, a bifurcated knot uh, at a fi- on the fire ground okay so, you've probably never been in an airplane crash too, but you wear a seatbelt. You wear, you know, when you're in the air, what do you do? You put your belt on, right? Why? It's a requirement and it can save your life. But you've never been in an airplane crash. So the whole notion that I've never done it in 55,000 years of fire service experience, no one cares. Just do it. That or walk away and, and let the pros do it. That's my thing. Um, it's the same with pulling hose. People think, ah, it's the easiest thing in the world. Then you go to a fire or you watch a video of a fire and you watch people struggling to do a basic hose pull. It is embarrassing. It is. It's embarrassing. Um, it's all about muscle memory. It's all about knowing where to hit your spots. It's all about being able to estimate where you're going. And none of those things happen at a fire station unless you're pulling hose off the truck. And too often, you hear people say, we can't do that. What if we get a call? Oh my gosh, imagine that, a call. Huh, I wonder what you could do. I know, go on the call. Break the hose and go on the call. That's why you have reserve hose. Bring reserve hose with you. There are always, there are always, and I mean always, excuses. And it gets old. It does. Um, it's the same old excuses. So quit making excuses and, and do it. Go out and do it. Uh, let's see, next question. Our department's looking at a hybrid engine rescue company. Wondering your thoughts. We feel as though... I feel as though we should maintain them separate. Well, I mean, I, I don't know much about that situation. I don't know the amount of calls you're running. And I don't just mean the SysDMS calls. I'm talking about fire calls, uh, alarms, things like that. Um, 
Look, the engine company's main purpose has been the same since since the fire service began uh, to organize, and that's to put water on the fire. That that's what it's for. Uh, the engine company is the bread and bread and butter. Um, it is. And uh, to me, a department that understands the essential mission of an engine, the essential purpose of fire engines, is a department that knows what they're doing. When you start marrying roles, and again, um, you're saying combination engine rescue, not a squad. Um, Squads can be very useful. Uh, But with this one, I just don't know enough. Uh, Although, look. Uh, there's nothing wrong with the com- with combining roles as long as you have the right equipment and the right number of personnel, right? Um, a couple days ago, a politician contacted me um, asking me, do we have enough people? And, you know, I had to be honest. I said, no, you don't. And uh, this person was surprised. It really was. Been told they have, oh, we've got plenty of people. Well, they don't. Um, and I didn't, all I did was point out uh, the standard and the accepted practices by the top 50 fire departments in the, in the country. Um, and that most fire departments attempt, I mean, they do, they attempt to meet it. So, I mean, there are things that, that you know, and, and this, this particular politician, he's a politician in a town where the fire department is, is starting to grow. Um, so I ask a straight question, I give him a straight answer. Um, we'll go from there, right? So the engine company's main purpose is always to fight fire. That, that's the main purpose. Um, they are essential. However, can you combine responsibilities yes you can um the advent of squads uh rescue engines it's definitely possible but again nothing works if you don't have the right equipment and the right people the right number of people merely having something that has something on the door doesn't mean anything you can't convince some some goobers of that you know chief goober and Colonel Goober and all these other people. I mean, they'll, they'll tell you, nope, nope, we've got five heavy-duty rescues. You look right there on that, look right there, look on that door, it says heavy-duty rescue. No, you don't. You, you have a sign on a piece of equipment. It doesn't make that equipment what you put on the sign. You, mean, you can call it that. That's not what it is. Uh, let's see. Let me do two more. Oh, listen to the podcast about the size of ladders. Wanted to advocate for putting 35-foot extension ladders back on engine companies, uh, especially when truck companies are not as numerous as they used to be. Um, I can see it. I mean, I can in circumstances. I was, uh, when I first started out in the fire department, um, we had 24 foots and 35 foots, depending on what engine you went to. Um, and I can tell you this, uh, if you're riding with four or five people, the 35 footer is nice. If you're riding with three people or fewer, uh, yeah, that it can be brutal. 
Um, a ladder needs to be thrown. Now, um, I know several guys that would do a one-man raise on a 35-foot ladder. I've got video of it. Uh, it's old video, uh, but I know they can, uh, and they did. But uh, it's a chore. So typically 35, you're going to need at a minimum of two people. Uh, more is better. More is always better when it comes to 35 and above. 24-foot ladder should be a single. One person should be able to raise a 24-foot ladder. And if they can't raise a 24-foot ladder, I would question whether or not they need to be in the fire service. And, and I know that gets unpopular with some people. I'm not picking on anyone. I am just saying, if you can't raise a 24-foot extension ladder by yourself, you you have issues. Um, it's just, it's ludicrous to me that you take up a, a whole other person to raise something that could be raised by a single person. Um, I would hate to think that a citizen dies because someone can't get a 24-footer a up by themselves. Now, all things being equal in a perfect scenario, you always have to. But that's not always possible. So, uh, and, and so, you know, th advocating for 35s, that's fine as long as you have the personnel and as long as your department has a, a well-organized order of arrival and assignment uh, set up. Many fire departments, and, you know, more than a few, when they arrive on scene, that's when every decision is, I mean, and it, it looks horrible. It does. Um, writing assignments, telling people, okay, we're going to do this, this, and this. You know, they don't cover every eventuality. They don't. But they give you a start. They give the company officer time to make other decisions. And it allows firefighters to immediately go into action as opposed to everybody standing around or running around um, trying to figure out what's next. The pros, they're ready when they get there. The amateurs, when they get there, they start thinking, then they start acting. That's the difference between knocking a fire down in 30, 40 minutes and being there for two hours or more because you've burned down yet another building. And, of course, and then you get the excuses. Well, oh, it was a tough one. Yeah, it, that... That building had a door on it. We're not used to have people having doors. There's always an excuse, and you hear them all. Final question. We're looking at, we, I am looking at doing a pod, well, no, it is. I'm looking at doing a podcast with a good friend of mine on fire service training. Um, with all the focus on social media, what's a danger of podcasting? Good question. Uh, I can tell you that, um, there are departments that are less enthused about it, but as long as you tip is typically, as long as you don't identify your department, um, or, you know, wear any shirts or anything like that, that in a photo or anything of that nature, you, you usually you're okay. Um, as to general dangers of podcasting, look, uh, I know I also had another question, uh, about, uh, do I worry about getting sued doing a podcast? No, I've been doing these a long time. I know the ins and outs. I've I've uh, I've been on the receiving end of of uh, those things, and and they work out. They do. You know, look, there are people out there. They're gonna they're gonna threaten to sue you over everything. If you don't want to hear that, you shouldn't do podcasts or do any writing. 
It's, it's how people are. What they forget is, is that when someone sues you, your lawyer gets to depose the, people who are, the person who's suing. And people generally avoid that. Um, because the people who threaten to sue don't want information out there about what you're talking about. So it gets to be interesting in that regard. Um, it does pay to have, a, have an attorney or attorneys who are, who are uh, versed in, in, in uh, media law and things of that nature. Um, it, it's smart to do that. And like I said, I've been doing this for a while. I'm pretty confident. Um, and my ability to, uh, to look at those things and go, yeah, all right. Well, uh, because I got to be honest with you, if you make a mistake, you got to own up to it. I mean, that's the biggest thing. If you make the mistake, own up to it. Um, but you're also, you know, there's a lot of podcasts out there and not a lot of people are getting sued so that there are, you know, good, uh, hygiene practices to follow with respect to, to podcasting. But I'm not going to get into all that. But but here's the thing. Um, just focus on doing a good job with it, and you won't have any problems. You shouldn't. And if you do, turn it over to your attorney, and then just keep, keep plugging. That's what we all do. That's going to do it for today. We'll be back tomorrow. Until then, stay safe.